I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. In part two, we begin with Holly introducing her husband-to-be to her parents, and they have mixed reactions. Let's resume Holly's story right now. So the first time I had him introduced to my parents, we had dinner. You know, your usual type of here's meeting the parents, and we had dinner. My mom, very caring, very loving. She thought he was adorable. She fell for it, too. Which is interesting because my mom was a master sergeant. You think you think she would have picked up on on something there, but she didn't. My dad, though, my dad did, and I asked my dad. Of course, you know, you go, "What do you think?" You know, you want your parents' opinion. And my dad was like, "I don't like him." My dad's always been very honest, brutally honest with me. So you know, I never have to worry about my dad lying to me about his feelings on a matter what don't you like? He was like, I think he was brass. I think he seemed kind of full of himself. He said, he goes, he had seen there, he had some cargo, some nice, like they were like nice dress shorts, but they came down to his knee. They lifted up, I guess, when he went to set at the dinner table. And my dad looked at above his knee where he had some tattoo work done that he had above his knees on his thighs. And he had a full back piece. My dad saw that tattoo and my dad doesn't have any tattoos and it's not like my dad has an issue with anyone with tattoos, but that tattoo in particular, he questioned because it looked like something that had been done in prison. Oh. And so he said to me, he goes, I think he's been in prison. And I said, oh, dad, he said that his friend did that in his garage, you know, that it was just some thing they did when they were 16 and it was a mistake or whatever. And my dad was like, I'm telling you, that's a prison tattoo. And he goes, he goes, you need to ask him what he was in for. Cause he's like, he's probably, you know, if he, and I said, he said he went to jail a couple of times, you know, for misdemeanor stuff. And, you know, this was before, this was like 1998. It was like dial up. You couldn't just like Google and, and all of these things, Background you know, search. Yeah, all this stuff that's available to us now. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't even be telling this story if if it was different for back then. But, you know, you were really in the dark about a lot of stuff. And I said to him, I go, well, you know, he was in jail for a couple of misdemeanors. I mean, maybe he did it in just like county jail or something. My dad was like, no, they don't do that in county jail. He said, that's a big tattoo that took a lot of time. He said it would have been very painful. All right, I'm back. My dad definitely had an intuition about him. Mm. And sadly, I blew it off and I thought my dad was being judgmental. Mm-hmm. It probably helped my cause too that my mom was, you know, oh, he's adorable and all of these things. Did your father ever move off that position? No, no. He, he tried to befriend him a couple of times, you know, tried to spend time with him, get to know him better, obviously when he knew that. I wasn't 
you know, that when, when him and I were going to be together, mm-hmm. but my dad could never really make that connection. My dad was always very concerned and always trying to talk me into leaving him. Even when married, your father was thinking, mm-hmm. get out of there. Yeah. My dad didn't want me to marry him. Even after I married him, there were a couple of incidences where my father said, this is a lost cause. You cannot help him. You need to leave. And I, the, the thing that was really the nail in the coffin for my father, as far as he was concerned, and honestly, now that I am a parent, and now that I look back on this, of course, I understand why he would say to me, you, you need to get away from this person, even if that means divorce. And because my dad had come over, this was three years then, and I do not, and you know, because the harassment and the physical abuse became so frequent, sometimes I don't, on it. I, I remember some of the incidences, but I, I don't actually remember what it was about in this particular time. I don't remember what he was upset about, but he was very upset with me. And he had cornered me in the living room. Mm-hmm. And when he, as I said, when he would get like that, it was like a manic state. And as I said, like, it was like, there was no one home. His eyes were really dark. You know, his arms would come up. He would, you know, kind of spittle flying out of his mouth, you know, just, just in rage. It was, it was frightening. I mean, kind of reminds you of like a wild animal. Yes. I could see and, that. Um, and he had me in the corner and that was a big thing for him was to corner me in the bedroom, in the bathroom and, you know, anywhere he, he could because I was raised in a family like when my parents would maybe they wanted to have a serious conversation, they would go to the room <laughs> and have the conversation. Yes, right. Take it away. Like mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in the beginning, I kept when he would get upset, I would try to put some space between us or I would just say, hey, you know, I'm going to go here. You stay here. I'll come back later. That was not allowed with him. And that's when he would just escalate. And so he had me in the corner and he was, you know, all my my father said it rem- my my dad comes over of course for family he just walks in the door and he sees this i mean he he couldn't shake it you know and he still brings it up to this day you know just seeing this this man have it with his daughter in the corner like that and i'm crying you know and i'm hunkered down and he's you know he and he said he's like you look like a feral wild animal you know he's like what else is going on when, when I'm not around, what am I not seeing? And I love my mom so much. And I hate to talk about this, but it was my mom who, um, kept telling me to wait it out that he would mature, that he just needed to grow up, get, get him counseling, get him maybe medication therapy, you know, all of these things, you know, it was my mom who kept kind of supporting that idea but of course I wasn't telling my mom everything I think if I would have told her more and in in great detail she you know she would have had my dad's same point of view on it Mm -hmm, yes but I wasn't telling my mom everything she just she knew about half of it what really played into his hand I think for me and you know staying on my mom's good side is he had he had come to me and confessed that he had a drug addiction 
about five years in, I, I really, I, I got it in my head that I needed to leave him. And it was because obviously nothing was changing and everything was getting worse. And at this point, he had been very physical with me on numerous occasions. I was scared of him. I was tiptoeing around him. Everything I did in my life was according to trying to make things okay for him, you know, so that he wouldn't get upset. Meanwhile, he was disappearing sometimes uh-huh. two, three days at a time. And I'm putting up with this. And I was so scared of him that I didn't even think I could leave when he was gone. You know, I was really like in, in this, this, like a cult, as I said, you know, I literally thought if I leave, he will find me. And he had told me, you know, I'll find you wherever you go. And of course he had started hitting me, you know, he, he, doors did not stop him. He would rip them right off their hinges. He'd punch through them, kick through them. He was really big on um, assaulting me when I was really vulnerable. So if I was taking a shower, like that first instance I told you about, on more than one occasion, he came in and and started being verbally abusive and, and, and a couple of times even dragged me out of a tub because of something he was upset about or something he perceived. There were a couple of times where we were being intimate. And of course, you're in a very vulnerable position when you're being intimate. And he became violent. Uh, because he said, I said another man's name, which did not happen. And that happened a couple of times. Oh, and I I should say, you know, when I did find out why, so I obviously, this was also around the time, you know, that I had found out he had gone to prison and I wanted to know why he tells me this story. And of course he's the victim in it. And I know that can't be right because you don't end up going to prison for five years if you're the victim, I mean, maybe some people, but statistically, it's just not true. Also around this time, he wasn't allowing me to go to college. He had really did everything he could to prevent me from seeing that through. So he was always just trying to disrupt it. And then of course he had problems with me going to class because I'd be around men. And it was just one thing after another, I was suffocating under the weight of him and everything he wanted. And I wanted to find out what Uh the truth was behind him being arrested and well, him going to prison. He never wanted to go home to New Jersey, which I always thought was really odd. Like, why don't you want to go home and see your family or people you grew up with? Then I found out. So we go to visit, you know, I'm, I'm listening to different conversations and such. And he had a couple of his friends over. It was a get together that his mom threw. I was listening to some of these friends talk about, you know, what happened and how he ended up in jail. It did not sound similar to the story that he had told me. So Mm -hmm. I asked a few more questions. Basically what he had done was he had gone to a get together. He was 18. I mean, he was a senior at the time. Somebody annoyed him. They got into a fight and the guy bested him, I guess. He goes home. He gets a baseball bat. He comes back. And he beat that man near to death. The guy had brain damage. He actually had a civil lawsuit against him in the state of New Jersey for over $100,000. Oh. And so they tried to get him for attempted manslaughter, but it was pleaded down to assault with a deadly weapon. Oh. He could have gotten out early on good behavior, I found out. But uh, he had to do the full five years because... Uh He couldn't even behave in prison, which I think speaks volumes. You know, obviously he's capable of 
of killing someone. Yes. What is Phil doing while you're hearing this? I mean, is he in the other room? Well, or? he was in the kitchen with his mom. Okay. When he came out, he heard the end of this because I'm asking tons of questions. Oh, my God. What's also interesting is his friends were kind of joking about it. You know, it wasn't, that was kind of nothing to them. And I noticed that about all of his friends. Everybody he kept around him, you know, they had all had run-ins with the law, if not gone to jail or prison. A lot of them had drinking problems or they were abusing drugs. A lot of them cheated on their spouses and and were verbally and physically abusive in, in their relationships. These were the only type of people that he kept in that circle. And those huh. these were the only type of people that I was ever allowed to really interact with for years. Anytime I tried to step out of that bubble, I remember one time trying to invite him to a nice dinner with a lady that I had met at work and her nice husband. He agreed and then he humiliated me during the dinner. Um, when it was over, of course, this woman wanted to never, you know, see me outside of work again. I was so embarrassed. Oh. And when I confronted him on it and was like, why did you, you know, he showed up drunk. He was belligerent and rude. And he said, uh, he goes, well, that'll teach you. I told you, I don't, I don't want to hang out with your friends. I don't want to go to dinner with people you work with. And so all of this was just kind of adding up and adding up. And when I did, you know, say to him, you know, hey, this, this story doesn't really mesh with the story that you told me, which was he was defending his girlfriend's honor, the same one who stabbed him, by the way. He was defending her honor and because this guy had punched her in the face. Yeah, no, that's, that's not what happened at all. That was a, that was a creation. In his head. And and I think, you know, as things went on, I start, that was another thing. I started to think he might be, there's so many things you start putting in your head to try to make sense of stuff. And so I start, and when my mom was like, maybe he needs help, he needs therapy, he needs medication. I started to think, well, maybe he's schizophrenic because he was hearing voices, right? He thinks I'm saying somebody else's name. He's always accusing me of being intimate with people. I, and, and honestly, I went to work and went home. I, I was too scared to go anywhere else. If I, you know, by this point is early 2000s, we had cell phones, you know, he would, he would call me, you know, if I went to the grocery store and I, I was more than 30 minutes, you know, what are you doing? I'm at the grocery store. You know, I, he was watching me every second. So that's why even when he would disappear, I was too afraid to leave. This all leads, I guess, to, I think he was obviously picking up on the fact that I was hitting that limit. I kept asking for him to go to therapy. I kept telling him, you know, I think you need some medication to stabilize your moods. I didn't understand that he was doing hard drugs. I knew that he was smoking weed and he was drinking excessively, but I had not been around someone who had done, who, who did hard drugs yet, really mm. like fully knew the signs of that. So I was really, really clueless. At this point in our interview, Holly's four-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, want to see her, and you will hear them in the background. We decided to continue recording because, although she is telling us about her past, we felt her present, meaning her new life with a loving husband and two beautiful children, needed to be left in. We pick up with Holly talking about what her parents went through when they learned about her abusive marriage. I um, I actually was thankful that I was able to talk to my mom 
and and you know obviously my dad and I have had conversations since and just looking back on it and getting and even just trying to understand what that mud stuff felt like for him and for my mom later when things got a lot worse and she the stuff she had to witness and then them trying to talk me you know, wanting me out of that relationship yes I can't imagine and especially now that I have children I look at them and you know that's a big reason why I'm, I'm talking right now and in telling people this story and being vocal about it is because I look at them and I I can't imagine what that would feel like to see them go through anything even remotely similar to what I went through. Yes. Because like, you know, you love your children so much and you, you want, I mean, you know, the world's not going to be perfect for them, but you certainly don't want them with someone like that. And then of course the, the ultimate, yes. not, you know, nightmare, which is what you went through. You want them to be safe and you want them to be happy, but in that order, because you're not going to be happy if you're not safe. Yeah. You know, you have to be safe first. You have to be okay. And and I will be very vocal with with my kids. I, I know I can't save them from the world, but I do want to at least make sure that they're aware of those kinds of signs and the things to look for and red flags and all these terms that we know now, like gaslighting. Yes. Future faking and and all the things that I was love bombing, you know, I didn't know about any of this stuff. No, I just thought if somebody told you that they loved you, that they did, and that they wouldn't want to hurt you. I thought it was as simple as that. So yeah, I still feel that way. You know, I know better, but I still feel that way. That's my go-to feeling. And you want to believe that? And I think people like him, obviously, they're out there. And as you say, you you're you have plenty of people that you interview. You know, it's amazing how often this is happening. And I think that's why it has to be talked about because it's been going on for years. And honestly, when it was all over, I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I don't want anybody to know about that. And I certainly didn't want anybody to know about it when it was happening. But the more I talk about it, and the, now, you know, the friends I have now and discuss it with my friends now, the more I've talked about it with my mom before she passed. And of course, continue with my father. My husband knows you know, my, my current husband knows about it. It feels better. It takes that sting. The trauma Mm. becomes less and less, you know, and it also lets other people I've noticed like my girlfriends and things like that. It's easier for them to come to me or to talk to me about certain things that maybe we felt kind of were, you know, don't bring that up. It's uncomfortable. Um, so yeah. When somebody finds out they have a disease, they, they're dealing with breast cancer. They share mm-hmm. it with their friends, you know, and they feel bad, but they're supportive and you can talk about it. And it wasn't something you did that caused it. When somebody has an abusive relationship, you know, they're married to somebody or they've been dating somebody for a while and it's emotionally and physically abusive. You don't really want to share that with anybody. There's all these problems with sharing it. It's, it is embarrassing. And it's like, well, why do you stay in the relationship? And you know you have reasons you stay. But there's so many yeah. problems with it that you just, you go it alone, literally go it alone, especially when that other person's trying to isolate you away from friends, family, things you used to like to do. Absolutely. Yeah. At that five-year mark, because he had become increasingly more physical 
I remember having a conversation with him where I said, I can handle a lot of things, meaning the verbal and psychological abuse. Because I, I said to him, I understood that he had to work through that. And, and he was telling me that this was little because of how he was raised and what he was exposed to, that you know he acted out in that way and said things like this and was verbally abusive. But I said, I could handle that. But what I can't handle is you hitting me. I can't. And he said to me very casually, well, it's not in your face. Oh. And that was so surreal, just sitting there with someone and them looking at you and saying something like that. Well, it's not in your face. And it was very matter of fact. His point of view on it was, well, if I hit you in the face, you know, that, 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 that's bad. But I can hit you. I can punch you in the arm. I can punch you in the leg punch you in the stomach i can throw you against the tv i can throw you into the window you know mm. i can strangle you but i'm not punching you in your face that shook me i remember saying to him i go how could you say something like that and i don't really remember him having an excuse about it i just remember him kind of just acting like well you know i'm right in this and, and you're wrong i mean he just in his mind, that made sense. And he was, he just kept expressing that he couldn't control when he got physical, that it was just like he checked out and he didn't know how far he was going. But my point to him was when you're throwing me around or when you're choking me, you know, all it takes is that one time when you've grabbed me out of the tub, which, you know, he had done and throw me and I hit the corner of the tub and, you know, I break my neck or something. I mean, I was like, one of these times that you're tossing me around like a rag doll, this could, you know, I could seriously be hurt or die. And he laughed at that. He just thought that was ridiculous. Around this time, I knew that he was smoking marijuana. I knew he was drinking excessively. And one of the rules that he would abide by was not to bring liquor in the house because he really liked Irish whiskey. And if you drink liquor... It was just really scary. You don't want someone like that drinking liquor. And so he he did only go out and do that with his friends. Mm -hmm. But he would come home in the middle of the night, sometimes of a night of drinking hard liquor. He would wake me up out of a dead sleep and attack me and accuse me of cheating on him, wanting to cheat on him, leave or potentially leaving him. It would be one of those scenarios. So all of this is going on. And this is when I started to make plans about getting out. I was in a bad position though, because we had moved away. We were on the East Coast. I didn't know anybody out there. I only knew the people I worked with and they weren't friends because as I said, he didn't allow for that. Mm -hmm. He had disappeared. I thought he would be gone a while. I thought it was going to be one of those things because around five o'clock came and in the morning, I thought he's not showing up. And my plan was, is that I was going to take a bus to the airport and then just fly to where my parents were and get out of it. He was smoking marijuana and I, I had put some rules around the marijuana thing because it was illegal at the time. You know, I was just a rule follower. I, mm -hmm. I didn't want it in, you know, I just didn't want to get in trouble. Sure. There were some rules in place around the marijuana, not, not keeping it in the house. He was not allowed to spend any money out of our bank account on it. 
I actually had a separate bank account at this point because, and I was sleeping with my purse too, because money was disappearing. Mm, mm. I was actually, I had gotten to the point where I was too nervous to even ask him, you know, what, where'd this hundred dollars go? You know, and I was on a strict budget because he didn't work very much. And he always had a reason, but he could never keep a job. So I was the one really carrying the household and the bills. And so obviously I'm budgeting by, you know, down to the penny. Mm. And so I ended up actually getting a separate account and I told him, you know, you can do whatever you want with your account. My account's off limits, but I still slept with my purse because there had been a couple of times where he had actually stole one of, you know, a couple of my cards or any cash that I would have out of my purse if I left it, you know, just like in the living room or something that you would do if you were actually safe in your home. And so the other rule was, you know, no liquor in the home. So there was no bar, there was no liquor, nothing like that in our home. Because when he would drink liquor, particularly Irish whiskey, that was his favorite. He was obsessed with Irish whiskey. He was not a, what they would call a fun drunk. He was scary. Mm. And he would become really obstinate. He would become aggressive. The few times I, I had gone out with him, he actually started fights with men. This is also around the time that I had seen him be physical with other men, like actually just punch them in the face. I saw him just knock out a guy once. It it made me sick. I felt like I was going to puke. Mm. And I remember his friends laughing and thinking it was, it was funny. I just felt like I was in a really, I, I just kept thinking it was all so surreal. It felt like it, I think I was practicing dissociation because I kept looking around me going, what, what is happening here? This is not my life, but it was my life. And so one night he, he, he had, he didn't show up and I thought, oh, he's going on another bender. I thought he was cheating on me and drinking. This is what I thought. Mm -hmm. And I thought he wouldn't be home for a day or two. And so my plan was to pack my stuff and catch the bus, go from the bus, get back to the plane section station actually there um in philly but i was all the way in a little town on the coast in jersey and obviously i wasn't really familiar with the area or anything he came home and this is another thing that was really interesting about him it was almost like he had a radar for every time that i wanted to leave or every time that i was going to try to get out of the situation he always showed up it was it was really strange but he always knew so I was in the middle of packing my suitcases. I just had two little like uh, carry-on rolly suitcases in my bag. And he flipped out. You know, it was this whole thing of how dare I have the, the nerve and the audacity to pack my things while he was gone and leave him. Because, you know, up until this point, he had made it very clear to me that was not an option for me. I was not getting out of this relationship. We were together to death kind of thing. And, you know, this is also when, when he had started saying things to me, like, you know, I'll kill you and kill myself, or uh, he would threaten his own suicide, a lot of emotional blackmail. And then also just the fear of him killing me, that whole, if I can't have you, nobody will kind of thing. A lot of people who threaten suicide take someone out first. Right, right. And, and just the fact of someone saying stuff like this to you, you know, you're like, Ooh. Yes. and this is also someone who had strangled me who had punched me so i had no doubt in my mind that he was capable of something like this it's also you know because i did know too about him 
attacking that man at that party on top of everything. So I was scared. I was, I was really scared. I remember just overwhelming fear when he walked in that door because I saw the look on his face. And of course he went right into a rage. He started, he held me down on the bed and he started punching me. I, uh, I was screaming because, um, what I didn't know is he was on cocaine and, and alcohol. And he, there was just something about that particular day. Also, you know, when he would punch me, you know, that he was, as I said, uh, very, very fit, very muscular. When a full grown man is punching you with a closed fist, that is, uh, that is very, very painful. And I had gotten to this point when I said I was practicing dissociation where I would try to be quiet a lot of times and not be responsive, kind of play dead when he would get like this because he would usually calm down sooner. But this mm-hmm. time I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off. It was just too painful. A neighbor heard because I was screaming, you know, please stop, please stop, help me. And they called the police. The police showed up. What's really odd about this, and it's just obviously just a really bad day and a really bad experience. I, I really wish it would have played out differently. At this point, we, when, when the police got there, I was on the floor in the living room. He was standing over me, but I was laying back on the floor, kind of, you know, curled up like this, facing him crying. He's standing over me doing that whole rage thing. Mm-hmm. When he came in, he had not shut the door behind him, so it was still open. The police could come right in. So they just looked in and and saw this, you know, so they just came right in. They told him to step away and he did. He got really calm, really calm. I will tell you, I've never, I never had experiences with police or cops until him. So Mm. the FBI thing, the cops at my door, you know, that, that just was not in my orbit. That was not a world that I had lived in. I, I never even talked to cops. And also he had this mentality and all of his friends did cop callers, people who talked to the cops, they were the worst of the worst. That was like the lowest of the low, you know, nobody calls the cops, that kind of mentality, but his attitude changed so quickly when those cops showed up, he went from a rage to very calm, very, you know, you could tell, and, and I saw him interact with a lot of cops over the, over the years that I was with him. Yes, sir. No, sir. Almost, um, it's like he knew how to interact with them and how to respond to them. What's interesting is my reaction was I actually got more nervous because I had no experience with police. And I was also really, really scared. I had a young cop. He had an older cop. The young cop took me outside. He's asking me what's going on. And I did tell him, I said, look, I just want to go home. I'm just, I was trying to pack my bags. I just need a ride to the airport so I can go home. And he said to me in a very sarcastic tone, seems like it's been a really rough night. I bet you need a drink. Oh. And I just paused. I was really insulted. And and it put me instantly on the defense. I thought about this cop more than once. (laughs) And I think it was probably the end of their shift. It's Jersey. They've been working all night. You uh, know, he's probably uh-huh. just dealing with domestic violence, you know, stuff over and over again. And I bet he threw throws that out there. And, and probably a lot of people bite and go, yeah, man, I'd really like a drink. But I wasn't that person. 
I was the wrong person to do that to. And sadly, I guess he was in that mode where he was, you know, he put me in a box. He had put me in and labeled it and he had already decided what was going on there. Mm-hmm. So I just shut down. And then they, they said, they said, all right, we'll keep it down. If we get called back, you know, he's probably going to jail. And they left me there with him. I just, I think, I think back on that so many times. I'm like, man, that could have been handled so many, so differently, but it wasn't sadly. Um, Horrible handling. This is when he, he told me that he had gotten addicted to crack cocaine. I really, again, I know I've used this word a lot, but it was very surreal. I had no cons. I, I had no idea about anything to do with that. The only things I had seen was stuff on TV or a movie or something. I thought he told me he needed help. And he said that this was why he was going into these rages and why he had all these weird mood swings and the paranoia and stuff. I, I actually bought into this. I thought, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. I, I mean, I guess, you know, crack cocaine and alcohol and, you know, if he already has a, a mood disorder that can make it worse, you know, so of course he wanted me to save him again and help him and his family, his mom, his dad was in the picture on and off, even though his dad was an absentee father growing up, he didn't know who his dad was. So I had been introduced to him. His friends, they were all telling me what a saint I was, that I was a savior, that I was such a saint. And at the time, I actually, this was a compliment, you know, I thought, I thought I was, I was so loyal and I was so saintly for taking care of this guy. And so I, at this point, we started putting him in rehabs. Some of them were state funded, you know, some were required because of things he had done and gotten in trouble for. And then the last one of the last draws for me there towards the end was one that I paid for out of pocket because again, I had tried to leave him. He had pleaded and begged and he had said, I'll go to rehab. This time will be different. And so I paid for a really nice one. I thought, well, maybe it's because he's going to these state funded kind of situations. And of course that was his excuse too. Right. And so I paid for a nice one where he'd be out in the country and there would be horses and all of these things, you know, for him to, better himself and become a new person. So I paid out pocket for it, all this stuff. I will say before I took him to this rehab, I had confessed a lot more to my mother about what was going on. She did agree that if this rehab did not work, I probably needed to look for a way out. Uh This is also when she said to me, I am scared for you though. And I was like, Oh mom, come on. You know, cause I was trying to make her feel better. And she said to me, I'm just afraid that he's that type of guy that'll show up at your work and shoot you in the parking lot. And what's really horrible about hearing your mom have to say something to you like that was that I could not say to her, oh no, he wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Because it had crossed my mind at this point. He had done stuff where I had seen him setting out, there was like a, it was a a bench that would, it was setting outside of my work in like a park setting, but you could see my front door of my work. I had come out at lunch. We, I, sometimes I would go to lunch with different people. I was working for a university at the time. He would be sitting out there watching me. And then when I would get home, he would ask me who I went to lunch with, how long I was gone, what I ate. You know, I mean, just really, you know, scare tactics kind of stuff. And stalking. When you went out for those lunches, did you see him over there? In the beginning, I did not. 
Okay. I didn't know. I mean, why would you even look over at the park bench, you know? Somehow you found out he was watching what was going on, but then he kind of challenged you to see if your story matched what he saw. Exactly. What happened was is when I would come home, he'd ask me those questions. I started to think, I'm like, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I fell for a lot of, lot of things, but you know, my will started turning with him towards the end. And of course I was thinking things like, why would he be asking who I'm having? It's like a test. Like I have to answer everything correctly. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I started thinking, is he coming to my work and like looking to see who I'm going to lunch with and watching to see where I go? Then one day when I was walking out, you know, you're kind of scanning, you're looking everywhere. And and I think this also speaks to the fear that I was living under with this guy, mm-hmm. that I was actually even doing this. Here I am trying to just go to lunch for the day, and I'm actually scanning the area to see if my psycho husband, I mean, I hate to say it like that, but that's what yes. I felt like. Yes, of course. You know, was hiding behind a tree. And there he was. And, and what was really interesting about it is he was sitting on that bench, like kind of cocky arms open, you know, legs open, Mm. you know, just kind of very casual, very cocky, almost like he wanted me to see him. Like he thought, "Hmm, you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm watching you. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I think he, he liked the way, I think he liked making me feel scared. I really do. And, um, because it, it gave him more control. I told him, you know, when we were going and everything like that, he, he disappeared. And I was like, oh my God, you know, we've got to be there. And there's only a certain time that, that they, they do an intake for, for their patients. And I knew if we missed that intake, who knows when I could get them in again, because there was only so much space at this place. And so of course I'm having horrible anxiety. I'm looking everywhere for him. I find him, he's down on a corner. He's getting drugs from a guy that he called on his cell phone. And the guy's just delivering them to him right there on the corner. Of course, I freak out, you know, and he explains to me, he's like, oh, this is what everybody does. Everybody has to get high right before they go to rehab. You know, I mean, he was just working on a whole nother level of uh, of stuff mm-hmm. that I could not possibly comprehend or understand. Sure. So I get him in the car. He's visibly high. My mom knows what's happened. She knows that I just had to chase him down the block. She she knows what happened down on the on the corner. I'm humiliated. I'm, I, I mean, the whole experience was just horrifying. I get him there and they, we were late. They were locked down. I'm running around this facility and I, th- I was having a nervous breakdown because I, I thought I cannot take this man home with me. I cannot have him in my house. I cannot live with him anymore. I just thought I was going to lose it. You know, if, mm. if he didn't end up in this facility, I was going to end up in a facility. Yeah, somebody's going in tonight. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm banging on all the doors. My mom's watching this ordeal as he's Mm. just like conked out in the backseat high. And I should also say the crack addiction, it wasn't just crack. This guy was doing everything under the sun. I could not keep track of his addictions. I was constantly trying to fix this addiction or fix that addiction. And I think that was all part of the circus for him. Oh, well, now I'm addicted to this. Well, now I'm addicted to that. Well, you've got to help me with this. Now you got to help me with that. They finally opened the door, took pity on me and took him in there. He gets out. He's using not even a week later. Of course, there's that big realization that I just paid all this money and it was for no reason at all. And this man is never going to change. 
On top of all of this, he gets in trouble again with the law. After so many times, obviously, of you being a, a problem for the for for the state or the you know the the law, they're gonna lock you up. He got his fifth DUI. Oh. And they they took his license away and they said you're going away for a year to prison. That year was the best year that I had in that relationship. That speaks volumes because I knew where he was. I didn't have to worry about him. I didn't have to wake up to him attacking me, worried about him coming home and doing mm. that. And he was keeping tabs on me even from prison. He was writing these, you know, really intense letters. He'd call me, where are you? Of course, we have cell phones, you know, so he's calling me from prison, but I'm on my cell. You know, what are you doing? Who are you talking to? Accusing me of all kinds of horrendous things. And all I'm doing is going to work and coming home and living mm -hmm. in this cocoon that he had built for me. When he got out, he he popped a, a test uh, within three days because this was really strict probation. Every three days they would test him. He popped on methamphetamines. Sorry. When he when he popped on the methamphetamines, that's when I knew. I I knew because the they told him if you this is really strict probation. If you do not stick to this, you will go back for possibly five years because he had hit someone when he was driving. Oh, he hit someone. Yeah. So that's why they said. Did he hit a car or he hit a person walking? It was somebody in a car. And so, I mean, obviously they thank God they were not hurt, but because of that, they gave him one year, but they said, if you pop on one of these tests, the strict probation that we're going to do, then you can go back for five years. Now you or me, right? That would make me become a saint. There is no way sure. that I would ever do anything to go to prison for five years, but he popped on one of these tests. I thought to myself, if five years in prison can intimidate this guy, what in the world am I going to do to help this man? There's nothing I can do to help this man. There's no mm -hmm. therapist. You know, he'd had several therapists at this point. He would never go to counseling together, by the way. Never. He refused that because he didn't want me in a room talking about him. He had been on antipsychotics. You name it. None of that worked with this guy. I started making the plan to leave. I, at this point, had become more educated about a lot of things. And one of them was that there was the potential that I may not make it out of that alive. Because I knew once he realized that this was actually happening, because I had tried to leave so many times previously, like everybody else does. Most people, many times you try to leave and it just doesn't go as planned. Mm -hmm. But I knew once he realized I was serious, it was actually happening I was truly scared. And I, and my parents were scared. It is definitely the most dangerous time. Yes. Absolutely. I went to, I stayed at my parents. We are not gun people, but my parent, my dad pulled out his gun. He had it under his pillow. I mean, my parents were afraid that he was going to come to our house and, and kill all of us. He was just that type of person. Uh -huh. And he was, every time I encountered him, he was physically violent. You know, once he realized it was real, once he realized I wasn't going to back down, there was one occasion I had to run from him, you know, scared to death because I thought, I thought if he gets a hold of me, I'm done. It was in the middle of the night. I was getting some stuff from the house. I had my dog. I just remember just running in the dark with my dog to try to get my car before he could get to me. 
and my dog was behind me and I was trying, my dog was only six months old. I was trying to get my dog in and he couldn't get me, but he was able to get my dog. And I, <laughs> this is so hard to talk about. It's so weird. I shut, the, I had my door shut and I had locked it and I was so scared, but he's holding my dog and I'm afraid he's going to hurt my dog in order to punish me for the fact that, that I'm leaving. And, you know, of course he's screaming and yelling at me and calling me every name in the book. He's holding my dog really tight up against him like this. And I had to drive away to my parents' house with him holding my dog, you know, like hostage. I just cried hysterically the whole way because I was afraid he was going to kill my dog, but I was too scared to get out and help my dog or try to get my dog from him. Yes. And I was still brainwashed enough that I didn't call the cops. I look back on all that and I'm like, why didn't I get a restraining order? Why didn't I ever call the police to get, you know, why, why? I didn't, I didn't. And um, I really wish I would have. You did eventually get your dog back? My dad the next day went over there and he got my dog. But my ex, you know, he took pictures of my dog with hats on his head and all this stuff and posted them all online all night long, making really weird comments. He he went off the rails when I left him. He got really, he was just very, I mean, even more unpredictable. And even his friends, his so-called friends, who were all very unpredictable people, they were even distancing themselves from him. I was the only thing that anchored him on any level. And when they knew that I was filing for divorce and I was actually going through with all of this, everybody just kind of backed off. Also, he was just putting everything on Facebook and saying a bunch of really strange things. So I just disconnected from all social media and because I knew that that was not, I was not going to participate in that. I also knew that I should cut off, make it, I didn't. I knew that he should have as little contact with me as possible. I didn't even want him to be able to look at a picture of my face on on social media. I did all that. I ended up paying for the divorce and everything. He was online though, dating pretty quickly. Even though he was, you know, sending me love bombing texts and sending me hateful texts and you know going back and forth on this weird roller coaster of I love you, I can't live without you and um I'm going to murder you and you know, I hope mm. you die and all this horrible stuff. And I will say, you know, when I had that very real conversation with him that this is it, it is happening. I'm getting a divorce. He did, of course, say to me and threaten me, I will bury you in the backyard and I'll kill myself, you know? Mm. And like, mm-hmm. I, and, but I had heard this before. And also I was at this point in my relationship after all of this, this time that I really, and this is awful to say out loud, but I would have preferred death to living with him any longer because there's just so much I didn't even talk about with him, but it, it was a horrifying experience. I was thoroughly traumatized. I still have triggers to this day and I've had eight years of therapy. I've moved on. You know, I, I have a husband, I have children, I don't think I'll ever be able to shake some of those triggers even to this day. So yeah, he, um, he, he got on, he got on dating apps in between all of this. He was unable to have children and he found this woman who also was, was unable to have children. And he used that, he played into that with her and that vulnerability 
you know, that vulnerability that she felt. But she was, she made good money. She had a good job, all of these things. And he was living with her within a couple of months and telling her everything she wanted to hear. And I should tell you that, you know, two years after they broke up and she did contact me and say, and I found this ironic. She said, you're saying, I can't believe you made it that long with him. And I was like, that's not a compliment. <laughs> I don't think that's a compliment anymore. But she ended up having to do the same thing. She actually said to me without me even asking, she said, I was sleeping with my purse. She said he was attacking me. You know, she's the difference with her though, is she did call the cops numerous times. So they had several domestic violence cases between the two of them because she did fight back. She was, she was Italian. She was from New Jersey and, you know, she, but she told me and she, she said she was, um, you know, she was scared to death of him. I think to this day, he's just continued to be in and out of relationships, but they don't last anywhere near as long as the one he had with me or the one that he had with the woman that he got involved with immediately after me. He's really pretty much left you alone at this point for a period of time. Mostly I got a random message. I guess it was two years ago now because it was around the time that my mom was, I knew that she was going to pass soon mm -hmm. and she did pass two years ago. So yeah, two years ago. And uh, what he had done is he had created a, a new account, a Facebook account because I had him blocked on everything so that he could send me a, a message through messenger. And he did, um, it was just basically, you know, a complete narcissist. I mean, just, he was saying he was going through another breakup, but he'll never feel as, he always reminds himself every time he's going through one that it will never be as bad as when I left him. And then he said, I can see your Facebook photo. And of course, you know, you have that banner up, yes. up at the top and it's me and my kids. And he said, uh, he goes, I, I hope that your life is as pretty as those pictures and not just fake bullshit. It, you know, he was, he was huge on cussing. I don't know if you're okay with cussing on here, but yes, that's fine. You know, he, he was like, I hope it's not just fake bullshit that you're just putting on Facebook. Yeah. And I just blocked it. When I got married eight years ago, I got a random text, but I could recognize the, it was, it was a new, it was a New Jersey number. And he said, I really wish you wouldn't have done that. I blocked it, didn't respond. This summer we went, we visited some friends and one of them knew my ex. She, she's a, a really nice lady who I kind of grew up with. I met her in my early twenties and, and she, she knew me when I was involved with him. Her ex still talks to him and she made the comment to me something along the lines of, you know, he's never going to let you go. You're always going to be the number one topic for him for the rest of his life. A huge part of me wanted to go to ask her, well, what do you mean by that? Uh -huh. But I just, I changed the subject because I don't think I want to know what she means by that. Yeah, I, I will say I saw what does alarm me is he has done things like change his profile picture to our wedding day and stuff like that, uh, you know, uh -huh. years, six years after, you know, eight years after those kinds of things are unsettling to me, but we are across the country from one another and hopefully it just stays that way. What advice would you give to other men and women, let's say, you right. know, who might be dating somebody or married to somebody who is abusive, like you've told in your story or at least similar to that? What advice can you give us? 
I really feel like I should have gotten a restraining order early on and I should have spoke to a police officer. I think just because you have, even if you've had one bad experience with a police officer like I did, or if you're being brainwashed in this idea and gaslit on cop callers, don't call the cops. I never did that. And I think that this thing, this whole ordeal might have been over a lot sooner. Not might, but I, I put money on the fact it would have been. If I would have had that courage to just go and mm-hmm. report him and get a restraining order. All the times that I did not lead, it was because I was afraid he was going to. And I know that I know that, that can't prevent them from still showing up at your home or your work. But documenting it, telling people, putting the barriers up drawing the line in the sand and saying, this is not okay. Instead of just living in fear, not telling anyone and, and being, and, and, and falling for everything that they're telling you because they they want you to be scared. Of course, they don't want you going and filing a restraining order or calling the police. If you do, maybe it will end better. I would hate the idea that someone would stay as long as I did out of fear. Yeah. That's very good advice. Take action. This concludes part two of Holly's three-part narrative. Be looking for part three of Holly's story on the When Dating Hurts podcast. The interest we are seeing far exceeds all expectations we had. You can see why we're excited. The more who listen, the more who better understand domestic violence. We see now that When Dating Hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love, through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation, power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps people. I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers, people who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help, victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor, and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.